0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Weaver, Beyond the Numbers, the business of government. I'm your host, Adam Jones. Today, we're going to talk about a huge and impactful and ambitious government program. I'm talking about the Provider Relief Fund, which during COVID was entirely necessary to keep our healthcare system afloat. And now, two, three years down the line, we are looking at the consequences of that for both private and public sector organizations. We're taking a deep dive into where government programs go right and where sometimes pro- government programs go wrong. My guest today is Anna Stevens, uh, the partner in charge of Weaver's Healthcare Services. Welcome, Anna.
1: Thank you, Adam. So grateful to be here. This is a
0: fascinating topic. As a CPA, how did you gravitate towards the healthcare field in the first place?
1: You know that's a that's an interesting um, question. I think for me, it's very personal. Um, I wanted to be able to help um, people in their everyday lives, and with my background in accounting, I was like, well, what better way than to do it through healthcare? Um, and over my career, it has just proved to be a, a a wonderful place to be able to to give back.
0: When you talk about government healthcare, we've just gone through and an enormous laboratory of government grants, things we've never seen before. Uh, and I want to hone in on the Provider Relief Fund. The government had a problem to solve. Uh, the healthcare system needed an infusion of cash and resources and the government provided it. But what I want to know is how well did the government do that job through the Provider Relief Fund now that you have the benefit of hindsight as a financial professional?
1: you know that's a that's a, um, a catch-22 question um, i think it just depends on um, when you're answering the question on how well um, someone might think that the government did i mean certainly as you alluded to earlier um, it was it was absolutely necessary i think that the government did a wonderful job of quickly um, getting funds into the hands of the of the frontline people that were actually taking care of and, and dealing with the pandemic um, i think the the failure that happened um, is that you had a lot of recipients that had never received federal funding, um, and so they didn't maybe even know that what, what the requirements were with federal funding, and the government took a, um, a normal approach to a very abnormal situation when it came to compliance, um, and so that created, at a minimum, an increased stress and pressure on these, uh, some of these recipients.
0: It's interesting when the government takes their normal approach to an abnormal circumstance and and it results in all kinds of unintended consequences. And some of these funds just seem to flow automatically. Um, Could providers refuse to participate or could they give the money back? Was there some hedge against sort of the government's intrusion into their business?
1: Sure, yes. And at any given point, um, a recipient could choose to return the funds. But the interesting thing about this program was um, any provider that had seen a um, Medicare patient in 2019 uh, was a recipient of either the first and or the second distribution under this program and you didn't have to apply for it it just showed up in your bank account and so you were very busy dealing with the pandemic and keeping your employees and your patients safe and you just had this influx of cash and you may not depending on how how in tune you were with your finances you may not even have known where it came from it just came across said HHS stimulus um, you didn't know what it related to necessarily um, and so you m- didn't necessarily know to return it or what was what was coming along with it the compliance requirements at the least and so those compliance requirements were um, very you know vague when the funding was uh, was delivered uh, albeit they were required to comply with the requirements, um, and the but the most interesting thing to me was, again as I mentioned, you didn't apply for it; you just it just showed up in your bank account.
0: It, it had the um, appearance you, of free money from the government.
1: Absolutely, and so so you you just get this money, and then you're supposed to um, go online and attest that you're going to comply with the requirements. However, if you didn't go online and you didn't return the funds within a specified time period you were inadvertently accepting that you were going to comply with the the requirements, whether you knew what they were or or did not. And so that time period was very short. um, And so a lot of providers that received the money didn't even realize that they had accepted this and didn't return the funds. And then fast forward, as you mentioned, to the time period we're in now, and they're having to deal with some of these requirements.
0: So you you created um, a number of New a new auditable class, far from Absolutely. regular institutions who do business with the government.
1: Absolutely. So now
0: we're three years in, the chickens have come home to roost, so to speak. What kind of questions are you getting from your own clients with regard to having to account for the provider relief funds?
1: Yeah, and as I mentioned, these requirements for this program were being written as the funding was being dispersed. So when the funds were dispersed right at the very beginning, there was, as I mentioned, very, very vague language that said there was going to be some requirements, um, had no idea really what those were. Um, and you alluded to the fact that you have a whole other group of folks that um, this auditable class, as you mentioned, that are not used to receiving or have not ever received HHS or any federal funding for that matter. And, and so I'm going to break that down a little bit. So you have um, entities that. Are used to receiving governmental funding not-for-profits uh, governmental entities and when i say government funding i mean specifically from hhs we're going to talk about hhs health and human services that branch of the government because that branch of the government has even more um, stringent requirements on the funding that they that they disperse um, than maybe some of the other branches of the government and so now you have this other group as i mentioned that are providing care to medicare patients certainly but are not eligible for hhs funding and in any other circumstance and so now they've received hhs funding and they don't know what the requirements are from hhs they've never been subjected to them Um, and so and they don't even know how what the what the pattern is with these with other hhs programs and so um, i have clients from for-profit, government, not-for-profit, all the above in the healthcare space um, that all receive provider relief funds. And it's interesting the different approaches to the questions that they have related to this program. So if you ask a not-for-profit a question they might have, they will oftentimes just take their a similar approach that they've dealt with on another HHS program and apply that to this program um, with a methodology of this is what we've seen in the past that HHS has wanted, so this is what we're going to do now. Your for-profit entities didn't have that luxury if they've never received HHS funding, and so they were kind of left in this lurch of what do we do? Um, And so they had lots of questions. Um, One of the big days for a lot of 1231 year ends was the 930 2022 audit deadline um, for a lot of these for profits, because a lot of for profits have 1231 deadlines or year ends, rather. And so that 930 was a big deadline for them. And so many of them had never been audited before. They'd never been subjected to these audit requirements, period, much less a government audit requirement. And so now they have questions from their auditor and they aren't really sure where to go to get the answer. Um, And then you have this rather large phenomenon of, this is a federal program, this is not a state program. So you have entities that are one physician practices all the way up to large publicly traded companies that have received money out of this program that are subject to these compliance requirements that has one hotline and one email address at the federal level for every single recipient to run their question through. That is a challenge. I mean, really? I can <laughs> Right, right. So think about the, the, the staffing staffing environment just in general um, right now in our economy. And then you, you say, we're going to take this massive program at the federal level and we're going to run one hotline or one email uh, for people to ask questions through. You can only imagine that 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 is the response is untimely if ever at all um and so now you have this group of folks that have never been through this asking questions with either no response or certainly not a timely response and it's 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 a problem it's a challenge for sure
0: yeah and not to to wear out regulatory metaphors although i'm working on it as fast as i can <laughs> the federal government sort of built the plane while they were flying it here um, Absolutely. Consistence, guidance, guidances—they, they sort of made to step up, stuff up as they went along. Um, how do you help clients manage that environment, particularly, say, a single physician practice or even a for-profit hospital that's never been involved in the government? I mean, most institutional healthcare uh, institutions who deal with the federal government hire hundreds of people in compliance and audit. Um, And some of your clients just have you, how do you manage that?
1: That, that's a great question because that's absolutely the truth. You know, you have fe- people that are receiving government funding on the regular or participating in federal programs on the regular have full departments, that that's what they do is sit there and make sure that their entity is complying with these requirements. Um, and now you have, as you mentioned, a one physician practice that is now sub- subject to these requirements, but certainly doesn't have the staff to, um, you know, answer some of these these requirements that, is, that they're responsible for. And so... What do you do? I think the biggest thing is to is one is to, to reach out and, and ask folks that, you know, are familiar with this um, and say, look, what are you doing? What are you seeing in the industry? How are you addressing this? But at a minimum, at your own organization, making sure you're documenting your your method to your madness, as I like to call it. Um, and so why did you do what you did? Um, so one of the things that actually um, came up for one of my clients is they weren't going to quite make the 930 audit deadline. So they um had some you know they were had never been subjected to governmental funding before had some needed some time to get their ducks in a row and their documentation in a row um and so my suggestion to them was to email the email address that they were su- supposed to submit their audit report to and say, hey, look, we are in the process. We have did not in- completely ignore you. We are in the process of getting our audit. It is not going to be complete by 930. Um, here's where we are in the status. Here's who our audit firm is. Um, and you know, is there anything else you would like for us to do? And and I said, you know, there's no get out of jail free card um, in this instance, but at least you have some sort of documented trail of what your thought process is, what you were doing, how you were trying to comply. Um, and the interesting thing is, is that they never got a response. They submitted their audit report um, in November and no response as to whether, as to why, you know, it was okay if it was late or they got it. Nothing. Literally, no response. Um, and so it's just interesting. But I'm, my my um, comment to them was, if you if they ever come back, you can show that you have tried in your best effort to uh, to to meet the requirements. So
0: it, it, the old uh, accountant papering the file trick, I believe, is what it's yes. called, right? Yes, sir. And and it requires you doing that with a level of meticulousness that you you probably don't have when you're not dealing with sort of an amorphous federal government program. So so given all that, and I don't mean to cut you off, was the PRF worth it to some of the clients? What has been their experience? If they could do it all over again, would they say, I don't want this money?
1: That's a great question. Again, I think it goes back to who you're asking at what day of the week <laughs> and really what, what, point of time. And so do I think it was worth it? Absolutely. I mean, yes, absolutely I think it was worth it. I think there's a lot of organizations that would not have survived um, had they not received the the infusion of cash for sure. Um, but fast forward, and, and that's the short, quick answer, but to dig a little bit deeper, if you fast forward to where we are today and to where these compliance requirements are being, you know, met, these folks that are having to do them may have not even been there when the cash was received. And so to them, it doesn't feel like it's, you know, was worth it because they're having to pick up the pieces and and meet these governmental requirements. But they weren't even there whenever the, the cash was actually helping the organization. So I've talked to clients before, they're like, man, I wish we would just sent it back. And I was like, well, let me back up to the day whenever the organization needed the cash and it actually helped you keep your employees and your patients safe. Um, it absolutely was necessary. But yes, it's been it's definitely been a huge lift for, for a lot of people uh, later down the road.
0: There are organizations, of course, with that infusion of cash, and they didn't survive the pandemic anyway, yet those federal dollars are still on the books. What happens in that case?
1: There's some pretty prescribed procedure, procedures on on how those are reported, albeit those procedures came much later in the game for a lot of entities. Um, so I'll I'll speak um, of, about a specific example um, that happened for one of my clients. Um, they they acquired an entity through um, bankruptcy, and um, the entity had the bankrupt entity had received provider relief funds, um, and The guidance uh, talks about how if the bankrupt entity and the TIN no longer exists, that the funds should be uh, sent back and then redistributed or reapplied for under the new TIN. Um, However, that guidance was literally issued days within when this um, acquisition of the bankrupt entity happened. Um, And so the new entity did not realize that. And so there was a lot of questions with HHS around, what the intent was, what was their um, understanding of how things should happen when guidance is coming out days within things happening. And um, I, I think there's some of that still to be sorted out. And so uh, it's very confusing uh, for, for some of these entities that maybe have a, a change in ownership or, or things have happened, consolidations. Um, now, if you look at the guidance today, there is some very prescriptive guidance on how to handle funds um, today, but that didn't exist um, or, or it was coming out. When, when things were happening as the funds were being distributed.
0: Yeah, fund recipients have a lot to figure out, but so does HHS. So if you could sort of sum up, what do you think the future of the HHS audit program is? How are they going to unravel this and maybe take a step back on the regulatory front? What do you see in the next two years and what lessons will we learn from that?
1: Yeah, I think it's going to be interesting. I I am really curious um, to see how HHS handles this. Um, From day one, when the funds were distributed, HHS did say that they would be – you know, that their recipients would be subjected to HHS audits, uh, potential audits in the future. So for, from day one, anyone that received the funds h- had the communication that they would, they could be audited um, by HHS. Now, certain indiv- certain individuals or entities are already subject to third-party independent audits outside of that. But now, um, HHS is going to be required to decide how how, and if they're going to, you know, do any audits themselves, and my my personal guess is that they will. Um, how they choose which entities to audit, I'm not sure how they'll do that. But the interesting thing for me, and the, the thing that I'm the most interested to see and watch un- unfold, is is when. So um, these PRF funds have have spanned over over a long period of time, and you're about year and a half to two years depending on the reporting period behind when you receive the funds and when you're reporting and being audited on them and so for those recipients that received prf you're much aware of the fact now that you can utilize lost revenue as part of your use of funds and so that lost revenue is a cumulative calculation And so we still have periods that have not been reported on for PRF. So they can't even get started on their their pool to audit until at a minimum, that whole cumulative period has passed. So you're looking at a minimum of a 2024, 2025 period that HHS would start to look at who they would audit. And then you have to staff that or figure out a, a, a contract for someone to audit that. And then, so you're looking at potentially 2026 2027 and then that's seven years past the pandemic six seven years past the pandemic so i would say that one this is not over Um, so don't if you've had a third party independent audit don't check the box and say we're done you could still be subjected to hhs audit i'm interested to see how they choose to do it Um, but then i think more importantly the organizations that received them i think they need to be aware of the fact that this could be a long haul for them and they may be you know, coughing up documentation that's seven years old.
0: Nothing is ever easy in government, and it's particularly never easy than healthcare. And this was sort of a perfect storm, wasn't it?
1: It really was. It really was.
0: What What's your takeaway? Uh, and what did you learn as a professional about the limits of government through this experience, Anna?
1: So I think um, there's there's a twofold lesson here. One, I think it was um, from a from a from an entity's understanding of what the government can and will do is that the government can absolutely have the ability to help quickly um, and will to the extent that it that it can, um, and then. But an entity also needs to understand too that there's never free money. So if your money just shows up in your bank account, don't ever assume there's free money. <laughs> that was one thing I told all my clients. They're like, we thought it was free money. That's always a bad. That's always a bad. Um, which is a bad funny thing. because quite
0: frankly, the government gave plenty of free money to individuals during COVID, but that is true. <laughs> not to healthcare providers. Not to
1: healthcare providers, which I think is also um, kind of interesting. Um, but. No, never assume it's free money. Always is always assume. But, se- but secondly, I think one thing that actually is a great takeaway that organizations unfortunately had to learn the hard way was good documentation is key. It doesn't matter if you're trying to support some sort of government funding or just trying to support funding that you've um, received from donors or from your own business operations. Good documentation is really key and important. Um, and so this was a forced requirement for organizations to meet these government requirements um, but it's a good business practice to just have in place. So it was a hard lesson to learn, but I think it's actually it's actually a positive for, for organizations.
0: Well, Anna, this has been a deep, thoughtful, and a really intelligent conversation about a complicated topic, uh, and it's not the last time we will discuss government overreach or bureaucratic burdens, but it's also not the last time we will take a hard look at the government taking effective steps to solve a problem. It it is never a simple story. I really appreciate your expertise. I think your clients are lucky to have you. uh, And it's been a pleasure to have you today on the Business of Government.
1: Well, it's certainly been my pleasure. Thank you, Adam.
0: Thank you. And until next time, I'm your host, Adam
1: Jones. Thanks.